ladies and gentlemen, a very good evening to our guest, Sri Rajiv Malhotra. Uh, uh, sorry, good morning to our guest, Sri Rajiv Malhotra, and good evening to the rest. And a special uh, hello to my good friend, Dhanwa. Great seeing you here, Dhanwa. How are you doing? I'm doing good, sir. Thank you. All right. So as the Army Commander our track, it gives me great pleasure to welcome in our midst Sri Rajiv Malhotra, an internationally acclaimed author and public intellectual whose interests range from physics, computer science, philosophy, history, civilizations, geopolitics, and the futures. Now, that is not only a breathtaking array of interests, but it is also really ambidextrous. Sabhyasachi, as they say, multifaceted and multi-talented. Multi so it's an absolute delight that he, Sri Rajiv Malhotra, is with us with 26-odd outstations and close to 3,000 officers the Indian Army logged in to discuss his fascinating recent book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. So, Sri Raji Malhotra ji, do accept our compliments for an illuminating book. One, may I say, with deep insights, as also for outlining for us as to how artificial intelligence will revamp our futures, just as personal computing virtually changed humanity. In some ways, the book is also much more than AI. It is a grand strategy for India to embrace and emulate. In any case, it's a book that should shake us out of our indolence. I do not think we have as yet grappled as to how profoundly artificial intelligence will impact our national security and war fighting. So our deep gratitude to you, Mr. Malhotra, for giving us your time today. Uh, the Indian Army's training command, acronymed ARTRAC, of course, looks primarily at training in its multiple dimensions across the army, but also at doctrinal thought, intelligence, operational philosophies, military futures, technologies, operational logistics, etc., etc., all of which will be impacted by AI. It's a kind of think tank for the Indian Army with some of the finest and oldest legacy institutions on its orbit, from the Army War College, which frames our doctrines and is working on our roadmap for disruptive technologies and transition to digital era combat, to the three technical institutions which look at communications, computer science, now AI and quantum, to MCME, which looks basically at electronics and mechanical engineering, but it is also pioneering our forays into autonomous drones, to the College of Military Engineering at Pune, which is at the forefront of our innovation in combat engineering, the CMM, which assesses our logistic futures, all that is happening in the spheres of intelligence, surveillance, and firepower, sensors and shooters additionally. So a multitude of domains, and each, as I said, begging for the infusion of AI. They're all embedded within our track. Our track also, may I say, in all humility, has some of the finest minds in the Indian Army's rank and file. So hopefully we are in for an invigorating session. May I remind the audience at our track that we are on the open Cisco web platform. So while we'll debate the subject artificial intelligence and associated aspects with passion and in width and depth, no operational specifics may be discussed, please. Do exercise due care and discretion. We, meaning thereby the Ministry of Defense, the Indian Armed Forces, and in particular the Indian Army, have for a while been looking very seriously at disruptive technologies, particularly AI. And I, here I refer to it, as you do, Mr. Malhotra, as an umbrella term, the brains really that bring together a wide array of emerging technologies. 
from quantum computing, blockchain, nanotechnology, 5G, the military internet of things, robotics, aerospace, so on and so forth. We have analyzed global trends and key drivers in the domain of artificial intelligence. We have in particular taken an intimate look at all that China has done, is doing, and is planning to do. Both the chief of defense staff and the chief of army staff have labored at length on the game-changing impact of artificial intelligence. We are in consequence embarked on a roadmap of our own. We always knew that the gap was considerable, but even a first read of your book drives home the fact that the challenge is indeed humongous. We will undoubtedly redouble our efforts and galvanize ourselves into more focused action and thought planning, ambition, innovativeness, pace and scale. So we are already looking forward to the sequel that you promised, sir, wherein you have promised to spell out concrete ideas not only to catch up on AI innovation, but also to leapfrog ahead. In the meanwhile, let us get to the book in hand. And since most of us have read the book and watched the launch videos, let me turn to the first issue that I would like to raise. And that is about the likely geostrategic trajectories of India and China in the context of relative AI competencies. Well, one view spelt out by thinkers like Kishore Mehbubani goes something like this. He says, from the year 1 to the year 1820 or so of recorded history, India and China were the world's two foremost economies and the world's two most consequential powers, till colonialism and imperialism, exemplified by the imperious tea opium barter imposed on China, stepped in. The last 200 odd years, therefore, in his view, were merely an aberration in the longer march of history. The natural inference is that we are now witnessing the inevitable return of history. And if in India and China and India, the world's number one and three economies in PPP terms, manage their geopolitical, geostrategic relationship with wisdom and will, they both shall prosper and bloom. You, sir, seem to suggest otherwise. You say that AI will be the defining metric of the future. And since China is using AI as a strategic weapon to leapfrog to pole position in geopolitical competition, since China is heavily invested into AI, and since India lags considerably, to quote a piece of statistic from your book, the AI boost to GDP by 2030, you estimate for China, will be in the order of $7 trillion. In the case of India, it will barely be $1.2 trillion. India, therefore, does not stand a fair competitive chance. How would you reconcile the two standpoints? Will the impact of AI on the prospective Sino-Indian trajectories indeed be as significant as game-changing? Will AI indeed be the most prized summit to conquer in the race for leadership in economic, political, and military affairs between India and China? Mr. Malhotra, please. Well, first of all, uh, I want to thank you for inviting me. Uh, I uh, always enjoy interacting with military people. Uh, I don't have a military background myself, but uh, it, during my 50 years stay in the US, I really started appreciating the brains, the audacity, the patriotism, uh, the scientific prowess of uh, military people. Uh, first, in, in, first in the US, because I worked with them in top uh, corporate positions uh, in, in, in all sorts of high-tech situations. And then I started looking at uh, the things in other parts of the world, in India included. And I realized that uh, military people are really a delight to work with because they're very realistic, they're very pragmatic. 
they are not running away from situations. They are not looking for emotional feel good. They want to know the facts. So that's that's the kind of style I have as a as a researcher and author. And I've always enjoyed uh, dealing with uh, national security people and defense people uh, in the U.S. for sure, and now nowadays also in India. So with that, I want to tell you that I'm I'm really delighted to uh, have this uh, discussion. The question on India-China, uh, you know, the the quotation by eminent uh, Singapore gentleman uh, is absolutely correct as far as history goes. But I think uh, it, there's a different view when you look at a future-oriented uh, understanding rather than a past-oriented understanding. Uh, there are disconnects in history. Of course, you can extrapolate the past and feel very nostalgic about it and try to convince the Chinese that this uh, Hindi-Chinese bye-bye should be the way forward. But China, in its, in its thinking, does not take India seriously. China has looked, is looking forward. They're looking up who do we have to beat, and that's the United States. And they've been doing this for 20 years. India is sort of a sideshow. India is sort of in the way, if you will. Uh, if India didn't exist, it would probably be better for them. U.S. is the one that they really need to go after. Now, to, under, to, understand, to take this deeper, uh, China, one thing I feel Indians are in denial is the, is to under, is the understanding of the China-Pakistan alliance, how deep it is. They are not two separate borders. Uh, India, the, if you look at the Pakistan border, China border as a unified front, uh, India has the world's largest hostile border. There is no border so long in, in kilometers. And I'm not even counting Nepal, which is so far not, not a hostile, but it could be one day. And I'm not counting Bangladesh, and I'm not counting Myanmar. These are relatively passive, at least for the foreseeable future. I'm counting simply the in Pakistan and China border. It's just, it's just huge. And, and, and the variety, diversity of terrain involved. And when you look at China's investment in Pakistan, uh, China is, needs Pakistan firstly as geography to get through to the Indian Ocean and then to the uh, Africa and Middle East and so on, which is so strategically important. And there is no other route. So Pakistan is absolutely necessary for China's future. And, and the biggest investment they've made in this uh, one belt and road initiative is, is in Pakistan. And, and it, but beyond just the physical level of uh, needing Pakistan, China also needs its mil Pakistan's military because Chinese military, this is something US people have told me, no matter how much they how succeed, successful they are in AI and they build all these weapons and they're building aircraft carriers and all kinds of things the Chinese are doing and they're really quite ahead in that uh, compared to India for sure and catching up with the US but the US feels that the one thing that they have over China is that the Americans have battleground experience boots on the ground ever since World War II there has never been a, a period without US fighting wars very aggressive wars somewhere or the other whether it's Korea, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever it is, the U.S. has been training, always has a very highly trained military in terms of, uh, you know, training its weapons, testing out its latest weapons and testing them out in real terms, in actual hot warfare. China hasn't had that experience. And this is something the U.S. feels is one issue the Chinese have, that the, their army hasn't really gone out to war. I mean, they're basically, a, you know, peacetime army. And so all kinds of things that they are developing have not been tested. 
Pakistan, on the other hand, has battleground experience. They have hot war experience and they're continuing to have uh, on their Afghan front and Kashmir and various places. So they have that experience. China needs that. China also needs uh, cultural knowledge about the Indian subcontinent, language skills, uh, you know, the climate or all that. So for them, Pakistan is a very good friend, ally, colony. China has pretty much colonized Pakistan. And as far as Pakistan is concerned, they've been up for sale for a long time. They sold out to the Americans, then to the Saudis, and you know now to the Chinese. So for Pakistan, it's uh, they really don't have too much choice, and they've they've just ended up in uh, China's lap. So this is not an alliance that's going to go away. This is not something you can wish away. Uh, and and I feel that uh, they are acting in unison, although it's not very obvious and explicit at this point in time. When you look at that, when you look at things in that way, India has a very serious issue. And China is not going to be an easy one to settle all this. Uh, they, don't, they feel they don't need to. They, they, they may not attack India right away, but they may get empower uh, Pakistan with, with weapons and AI and all that stuff. Now, as far as the role of AI coming, this is a general kind of statement, but as far as AI is concerned, I want to preface my comments on the power of AI by showing how technology in general has shaped wars and shaped empires and civilizations. Uh, recent times, a great example is the shoulder missile that the Americans gave to the Afghani Mujahideen to shoot down Soviet warplanes. And this was the result of semiconductor miniaturization. What used to take the, the size of a truck that kind of circuitry, that kind of uh, uh, you know intelligence it could be could, was miniaturized and put on a shoulder of a uneducated you know a person who could be trained how to use this. Didn't need brains, didn't need a whole lot of infrastructure. You could just carry it around wherever you go. If you see a plane up to fifteen thousand feet away, you can shoot it down. Now this is what caused the Soviets to lose because they couldn't have any air air uh, support. The air support would have given them superiority over the local Afghani, Afghanis. And with the, without that air support, they, they were finished. And that's what, that defeat ultimately culminated in the collapse of the Soviet empire. So, you know, technology can have that kind of a dramatic implication. I mean, remember, Barber brought cannons for the first time to the Indian subcontinent. And then the Europeans brought the, these cannons on ships. Uh, by the sea route, and India didn't have wasn't prepared. Now these cannons existed in other countries for a long time, and India could have sent spies, and India had the money and the resources to study other people, but didn't bother to. So this business of being very introverted and being very kind of con contented with oneself also has a dilemma, has a problem that you become complacent. You don't do what the Indian tradition calls purvapaksha, which means study the other. Purva Paksha is a term very highly regarded in the Indian Shastra, which says you must always be studying the other with respect. Don't knock him down. Take him seriously. Don't trivialize your opponents. So we haven't done Purva Paksha historically. And so we got invaded, invaded and invaded. And we didn't kind of anticipate who are these people, where are they coming from? What's their ideology? Uh, how much strength do they have? You know, how much money do they have? Can we go after them? We never did a hot pursuit to go after those people, even though we had the power to do so. And I call that a kind of an emotional psychological weakness when it comes to hard power. We can glorify it as sort of moral superiority, but wars uh, have not been fought and won and lost based on morality. It has never been the case. 
uh, history would have been different if that had been the case. So we got to be extremely pragmatic. So I see the the use of AI today as dramatic as you know the shoulder missile with the Bujahideen or with the cannon that Babur brought. This is going to be a game changer. And you know, this is not only at the military level, it's at the civilization level, at the economy level, jobs, or all, all kind of stuff we can get into. Uh, so the the uh, I, I'm convinced that whoever wins this AI, and we are right in the middle of it, it's not a 50 year long thing, it's not future science fiction, I'm talking about by 2025. By 2025, things will be in place with artificial intelligence, uh, highly militarized weapons, a new kind of industry and economy, a new kind of ways of hacking human beings and hacking networks and all that stuff that, you know, if you've lost it, you've lost it. And, 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 and the, the lead, uh, the, the, the lag we have uh, that we have to catch up is pretty big right now. So with that, I will stop and uh, take uh, interact further and I welcome more questions. All right, so thank you. Uh, before I get in general, Dhanwa, there's one more issue that uh, I thought I'd delve into, and that is of comparative strategic systems and their impact. And this is once again from your book, sir, where you talk of China's surge in AI and otherwise in technologies, deep technologies, and compare it with India. And uh, I think you make the point that China's surge in AI is, of course, about its, its intimate connect with technology, but it is also about its ability to think long and deep. And the Chinese resolve to retain their deep civilizational connect in thought and action. Uh, you talk of their connect with the Han culture and with Confucian thought. You also draw this uh, comparison between the leveraging of Indian and Chinese talented and cheap labor with the West and the manner in which the two countries uh, uh, did it. Uh, and that was interesting. And I think you refer to the fact that China leveraged this, this, this labor arbitrage uh, much more smartly. And even as it offered cheap labor to the West, it remained focused on moving up the value chain and creating a vast ecosystem of domestic IPR in next generation technologies. India too gave away its cheap labor to the West, but by way of lazy thought or strategic folly, ended up merely as a consumer of foreign technology and not as a producer of IPR. Uh, the second point you refer to is the perspicacity with which China promoted, and I quote you, a sharply competitive fight to the finished kind of gladiator culture in, in the domestic environment. It's wisdom in investing deeply in education and research, all part of a carefully thought through grand Chinese narrative. And the second point, which was uh, pretty illuminating, is that in contrast, we allowed our very strong traditions of yoga, which you call a comprehensive system of development. It's much beyond those exercises for health, dhyan, deep meditation, kshatriyat, which is a tradition which nurses the critical attributes of courage, dharma, strategic persistence, urvapaksha, which you referred to, which is a deep understanding research of the enemy and Janan acquisition of knowledge in the broadest sense. 
and by allowing, allowing these very rich and wholesome traditions to kind of wither away, unlike China who maintained the connect, we fail to combine the virtues of tradition, the structure and grammar of our civilization, as you say, with the finer attributes of modernity. Now, that's a very fond, uh, fine point. And uh, we ended up flaunting instead, unfortunately, the poor consolation price of Jugar. And I remember very distinctly, Jugar in Indian newspapers and columns was flaunted as one of our survivor kind of achievements. And it is this difference in approach or in our philosophy towards technologies and development that explains the lag between China and India in the strategic competition. Now, in a similar context, to paraphrase our external affairs minister, he says, China simply outthought the West. May I add that it has also outpaced the rest of us in terms of its scale and speed of execution, and there are many examples to the effect. In a, another surprise, because my generation grew up on the premise that it was the liberal West and its grand education system, we've heard of American exceptionalism and all of that, that was the paragon of all virtues associated with free thinking, the development of contrarian viewpoints, thinking long and deep, thinking out of the box, innovating, collaborating, etc. These were supposedly the virtues of open systems and not closed societies that helped outpace other competitors. But as it turns out, China, despite its closed system, has done precisely that, thought deep, thought long, uh, encouraged contrarian views, innovation, that gladiator-type culture, thus allowing China both to gamble, and that comes from that culture and risk-taking, to gamble on the technological opportunity that AI offered, also, also spawn an innovation culture and this gladiator-like spirit, which will propel China to strategic pole position well ahead of the USA. Now, that's from your book. I thought it was very interesting. Would you like to comment on it and explain the rationale, rationale in deeper sure. sense? Sure. Well, first of all, I really appreciate your clarity and the grasp and the, 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 you know, the amazing grand sweep that you've been able to put together from different parts of my book. And, and I'm very impressed by that. And thank you for that. It's a very good summary of a position I've taken. So just to go through all these points, uh, India did labor arbitrage, so you hire a software guy for $10,000 and you rent him out to the American client for $30,000, $40,000. You make tons of money. And if you are good at it, you can, and if you are able to manage the visa and the public relations and human resources, you don't need to be technologically, you know, a genius and innovative. But if you can manage this basically human beings, you hire and rent them out, you could end up a billionaire. And a lot of Indians did. And we glorified these people that they are some big shots and many big companies like whether it's Tata's or Infosys were created like that, uh, TCS, uh, Infosys and many other companies. Uh, but, you know, China also did something similar in the beginning. They all they rented out their cheap uh, factory workers uh, and made tons of money. There are two differences. One difference is that the Chinese took more than half of that money that they were making rather than making, you know, living the good life, life and, and enjoying the jet set and feeling we are great, they put at least half of that money back into long-term R&D. So they were able to make long-term bets. They bet 10, 15 years ago on things that would take a decade, artificial intelligence, robotics, drones, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, 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 these uh, electric vehicles, 
uh, as an example. Many, many such things they put their money into, uh, and these, I would say, eight or ten bets of a multi-billion dollar scale they made, and they pulled it off. I mean, there are more Chinese. Chinese has a, the largest market share of drones, of robotics, and electric vehicles. And the reason Elon Musk's biggest factory and first factories in China is because China controls the lithium supply. And the, this is all lithium-ion technology. And China controls 50% of the lithium market worldwide. They went and bought lithium mines here and there. So they thought long term. They said, okay, if this is the future, we'll, we'll own the technology. They put the, most of the patents in this uh, lithium ion are Chinese, uh, and we'll also own the raw material. So they've thought through very carefully. And, and India did not deploy the profit uh, into long-term thinking. Uh, it was like a jugar, make some money quick and the stock will go up and you become rich and everybody's happy. This is not nation building. I, I think we overestimate the the value of our industrialists because actually while they did create a middle class, it's a consumer economy. It's an economy of services, not an economy of R&D. It's a service economy, so you could end up, you could go and do be, uh, offer cleaning services and sweeping services and those, that is all service economy. You could have people uh, at retail shops and selling things and all that is service economy, but your service economy will not give you a technological jump. You need to have an R&D economy and R&D is something China picked up from America. So that's the second thing. The second difference between India and China is Chinese people use the fact that Americans are the clients to pick their brain, to learn from them, to reverse engineer, get, borrow steel technology. So Chinese did that. So if, if Apple has got all its factories in China, they figured out, well, what's the technology? So we make our own, you know, we don't, we can make our own also like that. They did India, the Indian brains, which were rented out have been for the last 20 years running the backbone of American banks, American pharmaceutical companies, defense contractors in, in your area, more relevant to you, whether you go to Grumman, you go to Boeing's defense or Lockheed Martin or uh, you know, you go to all these kind of companies, which are huge, multi-billion dollar defense contracts, uh, contractors, and the defense industry is like uh, a half a trillion dollar size industry in the United States, private defense. You go there and you will find a lot of Indians there. But, you know, India didn't have the tenacity, the cunning to, okay, the, look, we got our brains sitting there. Let's learn. Let's learn so we can we can also do all those things ourselves. We can also jump ahead. Chinese did that. We said we have advantage of we are creative people and we are free, democratic, and Chinese are not, and we know English and we they don't know English and we have the advantage. We talked about all those things, but China overcame those obstacles. They, without knowing English and without having a democracy and all that, they managed to get ahead. So I I think uh, Chinese have pulled off an amazing thing, and you have to study China, do a lot of puru paksha on China, and India I think has an sufficient insight into China. Uh, say compared to the U.S. inside into China. A lot of the my studies on China are basically uh, Mandarin documents translated by CIA. Some of them are in the public. Some of them, you, you, there are ways you can find out. And and uh, those are those tell you really the thinking of the Chinese. So Chinese, now what they did with the U.S. is they, they kind of uh, uh, made the U.S. feel that they are friends. You know, they're all friendship and we are, you know, until they felt that they, the tide has turned, the tipping point has come, the point of no return. They got enough technology from the US. Uh, a lot of the missile technology, they, they, some of these were stolen and the US knows about it. 
so the Chinese have played this game very cleverly. Uh, and this has to do with some inner strength of theirs being united, unified, and having a grand plan as a nation. You know, Chinese send uh, large, China, India sends the largest uh, number one, number two, number of students to US. Uh, we are very proud. We got a lot of young people learning in the US. Chinese also send, but there is a difference. First of all, they send for STEM. They don't send for humanities and social sciences. So they are not sending Chinese to come here and study Chinese history and abuse the human rights and say China doesn't have good human rights. They're not interested in uh, sending the, the young, bright people to Americanize them against China. They are not doing that. But India, a large number of people, while they come for STEM, a lot of them come for social sciences. And they are the, they are the people that I often have to fight and de de debate and argue with. They are the most anti-India people that have been trained. Uh, by all these very, uh, you know, kind of uh, not very India-friendly ideologies. So the the Chinese don't have that. Chinese, you, you go to Harvard, Columbia, uh, Princeton, there's a lot of Chinese there and a lot of Indians there. But the, the Indians are joining the, whether it is against 370 article or CAA or whatever it is, there's so many Indians in these social sciences that are actually working, I call them sepoys. They are like the British had sepoys. These are the intellectual sepoys. So China, there are no sepoys, Chinese sepoys working against China. Now, you, you can say that, okay, maybe they brainwash them. Maybe there is military authoritarianism. They have no rights. I, I don't agree with that because Chinese students go back. Chinese students go back. Indian students don't go back. Indians, more large percent of Indian students want to stay in the U.S. Most Chinese students go back. Why would they do that if they hate their country? They clearly don't hate their country. Also, China has the largest number of tour, foreign tourists going around the world. You can look up some figures. There are more Chinese traveling worldwide than Americans now. There's a huge number of, it used to be Japanese, but now it's Chinese. And they all go back. I mean, if, if you have tens of millions of Chinese going all over the world as tourists, and so many lakhs of Chinese going as foreign students, they all go back. So obviously you cannot dismiss China as a basket case that, you know, there'll be revolt and people will up, go upset and uprise. Don't buy into that. That's just wishful thinking. It won't happen. You got to take your enemy seriously. China is here to stay and become very powerful. So now, as far as AI is concerned, you know, the statistics are very clear. Uh, the number of AI patents, US, China, neck to neck. You go to any AI conference before, just before the pandemic uh, last year, uh, there was a huge conference in uh, New York, AI conference, uh, two, three, 3,000 people. Now you'll find Papers from Americans, papers from Chinese, kind of like 70% of the top papers are these. Uh, several hundreds of people, maybe 500, 800 Chinese people registered. Some, Most of them came, some were online. I saw, I went through the program to look for, you know, participants. I saw six Indians total. That's it. And not one of them speaking in the main hall, forget being a keynote speaker, not even a major address, a major paper. They were doing posters, you know, on the side. And these are guys from IIT, from prestigious places, but nothing innovative enough to get in. So the, you know, now you will find a lot of Indians who are not from India, but based in the US who are top. You'll find these guys in Google and you'll find them in Facebook and uh, Microsoft and you'll find all these brilliant people. So what has India done? India has uh, India has got a skewed education system where uh, a few colleges are training a very high quality people, but most of the people who are got engineering degrees are not functioning as engineers. They are not really doing any engineering design. 
I mean, they just got a degree, but they're not really working as engineers. Uh, so uh, that is one issue. The second issue is that the brilliant ones generally go abroad. And the ones who stay in India end up working for Microsoft India, Google India, Facebook India. They, they're working for the foreign subsidiary in India. So if you look at uh, patents, a very tiny percent of the worldwide patents in AI and similar technologies comes out of India. And the ones that do come out of India are generally owned by Microsoft or, or Apple in India or, or, or Google in India. So even so now, you know, you wonder why didn't Infosys get into this business? Why didn't TCS get into this business? Why didn't Reliance get into the business? Why did Reliance have to bring in Google and Geo and, and Google and Facebook into their Geo, which is terrible. I, 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 my book wasn't out then, but I wanted to publish that particular chapter I called Digital Colonization. I wrote a 10-page summary of it, and the Indian press, they're not interested in that. Nobody wanted to listen to that because they were so excited that, bhaiya, Americans like us, they're putting money into this. But the point is that they're buying us out. They, 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 Geo was one organization with the money clout behind them that they could have taken on and said, we'll build our own search engine, we'll build our own uh, you know, this kind of technology, uh, rather than saying, okay, we'll just buy their technology, license their stuff and give them market access. So giving them market access does two things. First, it perpetuates our dependency on them for technology, because once that treadmill starts, it continues. Second thing, by giving them market access, you're giving them all the big data and AI runs on big data. Like it's big data is the oil, as some people say. Uh, this, uh, so brains, we've had the brains we've rented out rather than making IPR for ourselves. We've rented out the brains to uh, foreign clients and they make the intellectual property belonging to them and then we license it back. This is not a very smart plan. The second thing is big data. We have a lot of big data rather than uh, utilizing it and producing solutions for ourselves and marketing, selling those solutions to other people. Our big data is out there available people, not even it's not even clear who's in charge. Uh, right now, Kumbh Mela is going on. I, uh, you know, 12 years ago, at the previous Garidwar uh, uh, Kumbh Mela, I realized that uh, Harvard had a project called Mapping the Kumbh Mela. And they, for AI purposes, they had surveillances, cameras for facial recognition. And they were doing, gen taking samples and medical samples and for genetic purposes, doing a whole lot of demographic analysis of who are these people, which village they come from, what society, what caste they belong to, uh, you know, which community and whatnot. Building a map of India, which is very dangerous to allow somebody else to understand us, our sociology and our, our uh, you know, uh, schisms and and uh, you know internal conflicts and uh, so on to understand us better than we understand ourselves but they were doing it so i went and wrote so many papers i have uh, videos on my channel uh, where i criticize that india india should not be allowing all this i went and analyzed the whole harvard uh, thing and i found out uh, that uh, they had uh, so many indians involved in it they had also got many of the indian politicians and bureaucrats on their side and so i was pretty upset and so I, I, my uh, report on, uh, you know, Kumbh Mela as a big AI kind of a catastrophe, we are giving away this big data to foreign entities to study us because it's a microcosm of India, Indian society that goes to the uh, uh, Kumbh Mela and to, to give them chance to study all of this and build models, psychological models, behavior models would be dangerous for us. Uh, so uh, I did that and uh, over one lakh copies of my booklet, book, it was about 30, 40 pages in English and Hindi were circulated at the Kumbh Mela. A lot of uh, people congratulated me, said this is very good, the government should take note of it. 
nobody bothered. Uh, I would like to see something equivalent to the Space Commission, which is totally independent of uh, government bureaucrats or the Baba Atomic Research Commission. I think India should create something like that, uh, you know, Artificial Intelligence Commission. And I would like a military person to be in charge of it because they are very realistic. Uh, industry people in AI, firstly, they missed the boat on uh, doing the, res the, the research. Uh, they have led, basically supplied manpower to foreign people to do the research, and it's easy money. But they haven't done the uh, research on their own. The second thing is that, uh, uh, they, they, so they're, what they're optimizing is short-term gain, short-term profit, good for the stock market. And I, and I don't think that that would be the right approach if you want to build the nation. So you need people who are patriotic, very logical, scientifically savvy, uh, and, and who can think long-term. And, and India does not have too much time to waste. Uh, this is this is the sort of call to action that has to be noted very quickly. Thank you very much for the question. I just want a quick follow up on this. Uh, you know, this uh, the fact that the Chinese are much more innovative, risk taking, um, and as a nation, I mean, it's China is not only whole of government, it's whole of society in their whole approach towards these high end technologies and all. My basic question to you, sir, as a quick follow-up by, by way of a follow-up is this, that this propensity inclination for greater risk-taking, innovation, and that gladiator-type culture that you spoke of, a bright Indian and a bright Chinese in USA, why is it that an Indian uh, goes in for what Mr. Subramanian Swami calls guaranteed poverty, lifelong guaranteed poverty, whereas the Chinese, they go in for innovation is it a personal choice or is it because of uh, systemic encouragement? See, I am also sure connected, I... just, just also yeah, connected sure. to that points that you made about civilizational connect. You know, for example, I was pleasantly surprised. We always thought Kshatriyat is only about valor, but you say it is about dharma, strategic persistence, thinking long term. So these, the dilution of these deeper traditions. Uh, in our case, in our education system, and the retention of these very same virtues in the Chinese sense, in the case of China, are these cumulatively the cause of the Indians going for, uh, or shall we say, avoiding risk, avoiding innovation, and the Chinese doing quite the contrary? Would that be a right inference? So this is a good question. So let me reflect on it. Uh, Kshatriyata is, uh, you know, the Raja Dharma, the Raja's Dharma is the Kshatriya, he's the, he's the keeper of the state, uh, power, hard power, uh, economy, military, uh, or law and order, and he has to be a strategist, he has to think long term, he has to understand his enemy, he must, uh, he, so he has, he's has to, he has to be a very all-rounded uh, leadership kind of person. So uh, that that uh, tradition has not been there because uh, you know uh, because of uh, long-term uh, colonization. So colonizers hate the Kshatriya because he's the one who can actually uh, strategize and get rid of the colonizer. They don't mind an intellectual. If the Kshatriya can be finished off or sidelined or compromised, the Brahmin, uh, you know, they can buy him out or he, they can put him into something very abstract and high flown and, and so forth. Uh, so if you notice uh, in the 71 war in Bangladesh, 71 war in Bangladesh, it was very important for the Bangladeshis, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the Pakistan army when they in, invaded uh, Bangladesh, when they invaded what was East Pakistan at the time, 
it was very important for them to round up the intellectuals and the leaders, the political leaders. They put them together in Dhaka University and shot them, killed them. That was a genocide. So genocide of those who are capable of leadership is very important part of uh, subjugating a, a people. Uh, you don't mind those who are submissive and passive and who won't talk back and argue back. And those are fine. You can even use them for, for your advantage. But the one who is who's going to stand up uh, and show leadership has to be killed. There is a, a there's a movie called Schindler, Schindler's List. Uh, that's about the so, uh, Nazi camp. Uh, where they had these Jews in the Nazi camp, a concentration camp, and they were killing them. It's a very important scene where the, the Nazi leader, the uh, general, is trying to get some project done and uh, with the, the prisoners. The prisoners are supposed to do work, and they're bumbling around. They're not able to do it, uh, and, and he's very angry at them. Uh, one prisoner woman uh, walks up to him and says, Sir, I don't mind taking control. I have project management skills. I have leadership skills. I'm trained. Uh, and I know how to command people. And if you want, I can delegate to me. I will get this work done. You know, he takes out his pistol, bang, shoot her. Now, the message is why Why would he do that? She offered help because she has leadership skills. She's a Kshatriya. She may be very dangerous. She may do work for you, but she could also organize them. She could give them strategy, which these people don't have on their own. So that's the, the point here, that loss of Kshatriyata. In Kashmir, what happened is, uh, the Kshatriyas uh, uh, were finished off, uh, and, then, and then the Brahmin uh, ruling uh, elite, uh, you know, the, the uh, Muslim rulers could uh, live with them because they're not going to harm you. So this business of Kshatriyata is so important in nation building. Now, as far as Chinese are concerned, if you look at Confucian thought, there it is very Kshatriya oriented in their own way. They have that; they have it in there. Uh, and the China did the following. In the last 40 years, before that, China and India were at par, equally kind of poor, undeveloped, not educated, not disciplined, lot of problems, both of them similar. And you look at how far we went and how far they went. They did for two generations that, look, we have to suffer pain. There is no immediate feel good and tamasha and, you know, here and there, Bollywood function and we are going to do it systematically. But for two generations, uh, we have to experience pain so that the future will be good. That's a long-term bet. Maybe in a democracy, you can't do that. Maybe it's not so easy because you have to promise people something quick. You know, then, then the thing is that the long-term nation building is not going to happen that way. So India did not, the Indian leaders were not able to say, look, two generations have to pay the price. You got to go through this because we have got a thousand years baggage. And to finish it off, we got to pay, pay this price for two two generations, and then we will become world class. China did that. They, they, the Chinese have the ability to face. I found that Chinese are able to uh, take pain. Uh, they, they're able to take a lot of beating and not give up. They, they, this, there is some kind of a uh, emotional, mental resilience that they have built into their into their population, and that has to do with kind of education. So the, now the one point I disagreed with the, what you mentioned that all the Indians have kind of uh, gone for a risk averse. You will find in Silicon Valley some some of the top most uh, most uh, uh, amazing success stories nowadays. These are Indians from uh, some of them are from India. A lot of them are second generation born and raised here. You look at uh, many of the startups and these people are worth billions. 
for them to be worth 50 million, 100 million is okay. It's just a normal thing. So there is a class of Indian youth in this high-tech field who've done very well in the American ecosystem. But when you ask them, they said we, they, don't, they don't think there was any chance in the Indian ecosystem to achieve this. So what has happened is when you have 1.3 billion people, there's going to be people of all kinds across the spectrum. The ones who are of this caliber have left, uh, uh, by and large. I mean, it's not like everybody has left. There are a lot of smart people in India also. But I'm saying numerically, a large number of these people have left. And they have made a lot of money. They are very successful and so on. A lot of Chinese also, a lot of Chinese in this. The Chinese are more connected with China. You don't find case of Indian that much. I did a uh, uh, private, uh, uh, you know, webinar. Uh, uh, Twenty-five of the top Indian venture capitalists in technology in Silicon Valley invited me a month ago to do a webinar on AI on my book. They were very interested, so I did it. Uh, now the interesting thing is the primary objective was. How do I go and invest money in India? Where do I go to make some money? How do I? It was all. It was not about how do I help India. It was more about uh, is there an opportunity in this sector, that sector, uh, which company should I buy out? You know, it was. They were all looking at it from a very selfish point of view. So I would say a better characterization is that uh, the Indians have uh, encouraged individual success, personal success. It's not so much a collective thing. Mm -hmm.